So what do people usually recommend when you tell them that you're uh, struggling with anxiety and depression and you'd like to get better? There's a lot of things that are traditionally recommended, and I think it's worth exploring whether they're really essential. Because if the things that are not essential are recommended and presented to you as if they are essential, then... Uh, we run the risk of getting bogged down in uh, solutions that go nowhere. And we even uh, are possibly going to reinforce our problems. So let's think about it. What do, what do people recommend as common sense solutions to uh, you know, getting over your depression or your anxiety? Diet is one of them. Well, it's good to be healthy and to take a look at what you might be doing that is contributing to you not feeling well physically. But I'm going to say that diet is not essential. The way that problems with anxiety and depression develop has to do with vicious cycles where you are feeling bad and then you're feeling bad about feeling bad and you're uh, obsessed with your own feelings and diet doesn't really address those vicious cycles it might be the case that what is important to you in your life is to eat in a different way in which case diet for you might be a part of recovering from your problems but it's not necessarily for everybody. I don't necessarily eat that healthily. And the things that I learned from my former therapist, the late Amr Bharata, didn't pertain to diet and exercise. And if we tell people that they have to have a certain diet in order to be at peace with their emotions, well, now you get into situations where it's like, can I, can I afford to have peace of mind? You know, there are certain people who don't have access to good food. And uh, there might be people who have so much going on in their life that it's not a primary concern for them to look into their diet. And you can find people in these sort of settings where, you know, they, they don't have access to good food or they're too busy to focus on their diet. And they're not mired in the vicious cycles of emotional problems. Uh, they look at it as something in their life that, man, they wish they had time and resources to address, but it's just not at the top of their list. And that's okay. There might be room later on to focus on those things, and there might be consequences to not focusing on them. But there's always consequences with whatever choices we make. And the food stuff does not pertain. 
to the vicious cycle necessarily. So what else? There's um, exercise, kind of in the same boat as diet. Uh, feeling good physically is a good thing. And it can uh, promote your physical health and maybe extend your life. And you might realize that it's something that you want to be a part of your life. I enjoy taking long walks and I find it is, uh, I like the way it feels in my body and I often find that I come up with better ideas for my writings and the art that I work on when I'm going for a walk. There's just something about it. But, you know, maybe somebody is disabled and they're not able to get a lot of that kind of exercise. And just like with the diet, maybe there's somebody who is really leading a meaningful life and they're saying, no, I am not uh, struggling with emotional problems. I am engaged in what's purposeful to me every day. And man, I do kind of worry about uh, my physical health, but uh, it's not creating a vicious cycle for me. Okay, meditation. There are some people who would say that you need to meditate in order to have peace of mind. And I used to be interested in that idea. When I was younger, I did a lot of meditating. And I still do. Uh, I don't do it as much as I did when I was younger, but I get a lot out of sitting and breathing and letting my thoughts do whatever they're going to do and taking a break from working on the things that I need to work on. And sometimes it's nice to do that in a sitting posture uh, so that I don't fall asleep. I definitely like taking naps too, but um, there's something about sitting and breathing for quite a while, you know, maybe a half an hour, and just noticing the breath and noticing the sounds around me that uh, I like it, I recommend it, but it depends on why you're doing it. So this is something that Amr pointed out to me when I first started seeing him as a client, is that there are a lot of people who go to meditation uh, in the hopes of getting rid of their thoughts and feelings, getting rid of their depression or their anxiety or their anger. And it can actually have the opposite of the intended effect if that's why you're meditating. Um, sitting there and trying not to feel anxious is a good recipe for feeling more anxious. I mean, because you're not even distracting yourself with anything. You're just sitting there alone with your anxiety. Um, so that's something to think about, that you, you might want to withhold meditation if it's making things worse for you. And that's definitely something that happens. There's even, a, you know, um, psychologists look into this issue and they have a term for it. It's called relaxation-induced anxiety. And so when we, when we try to relax, it's not relaxing. Relaxing is something that you allow to happen, but you can't really make it happen. And when we try to find ways of forcing ourselves to relax, we feel less relaxed. So the recommendation to meditate is not necessarily going to address the vicious cycles and the dilemmas that are what build up, um, 
what make up emotional problems. Okay, what about connection? There's uh, talk nowadays about, you know, living in modern society and uh, the lack of connection that we feel, that we've kind of traded good quality connection for uh, cheap connection through social media, and this is having uh, a negative effect on us in general. I think we're on the right track by thinking about that because what happens with, say, an anxiety problem is that you're so focused on the feeling itself that you stop thinking about what meaning it has for your life, what you're actually anxious about. And so this discussion about connection and uh, having more uh, maybe connection with nature as well as with other people, I like the direction it's going in because now we're actually talking about what our anxiety is about and what our depression is about. And that's a great first step to uh, getting on that road of recovery. But I think it can still be a distraction, um, uh, a red herring. Because it might be the case that somebody chooses to live in seclusion and they know themselves and that's working for them. And it's probably pretty natural to feel lonely in those situations, but it's a trade-off just like anything is. And a person might well make the decision, yeah, I'm going to accept the loneliness because I enjoy this seclusion and I'm, the, the pros of the seclusion outweigh the cons of the loneliness. And so there's no double bind there. Uh, there's no vicious cycle. What's happening there is the person is allowing themselves to feel however they're going to feel, and they are taking responsibility for the, uh, the trade-off, for the dilemma that happens whenever we choose to do anything. There's always going to be consequences to one choice and consequences to the opposite choice. And this doesn't necessarily have to add up to um, an emotional problem, a vicious cycle. Uh, it might be the case that somebody really wants connection and they're looking for it, but they just haven't found the right people yet. And that's okay. You can still be accepting with yourself and uh, allow yourself to be bothered by the pain of loneliness and know that you're on the path to trying to find the right people. That is not the same as a situation where you're saying, I'm lonely, oh my God, what's wrong with me for feeling lonely? I need to get rid of this loneliness. That's more the language of the emotional problem. The language of um, not having an emotional problem is more like, yep, I'm lonely. I really want to find some people and I'm discouraged about how I'm not having any luck, but I'm going to keep trying and I'm just going to try to be uh, easy on myself as I look for people and uh, accept the loneliness because that's really all I can do right now. What about positive thinking? I think that a lot of people are catching on to the red herring that positive thinking is. When you meet somebody who tries to get you to be positive, uh, you can often sense like uh, 
an extra amount of negativity behind their actions and the things that they say to you. We don't need to be positive all the time. The life, um, the, the world and our lives are filled with situations that are calling for negativity, uh, things that aren't working well, things that we want to improve on. And our negative emotions tell us what our needs and our values are. And if we were to somehow successfully replace our negative feelings with positive ones without looking into the meaning of the negative ones, uh, I think that would describe ill health, where um, you're not being adaptive, you're, uh, you're disconnected from your natural and valid and information-filled negative feelings. It's okay to temporarily say, okay, uh, I want to watch a movie or I want to get uh, an ice cream bar or um, I want to read a book that I enjoy or listen to some music or go for a walk because um, I could use some encouragement. I could use a little boost. That's okay to do that every once in a while. But for somebody to tell you that the reason that you have a problem with depression or anxiety is because you're not positive enough, that's a pretty, that's a shortcut to an even worse anxiety problem. Uh, better mental health involves being negative and being positive and trying to accept those feelings uh, as they arise and knowing that they all make sense and that they're valid and being accepting with yourself when you're not able to fully accept your feelings. There's not uh, a need to force yourself to feel positive or negative or any particular way if you want to recover from these vicious cycles. Rational thinking. I'll do an episode that delves more into that because that's a huge subject, but uh, it often surprises clients to learn when they first start getting help for emotional problems that all clients are super rational when we're uh when we're trying to get out of these problems of uh anxiety and, dep and depression and all types of emotional problems uh, we're often approaching it with uh an excessive amount of analysis and uh what we need to learn what i did what i needed to learn and according to amar barada and now according to me because i work with clients now uh, what I needed to learn was how to let things be and understand that feelings aren't rational. They make sense. All of our feelings make sense, but they're not rational. So, you know, somebody who goes to the top of a building and feels afraid, you know, has a sense of vertigo and starts thinking, oh my God, what if I jumped off of the building? How terrible would that be? That is natural. It's not necessarily rational. There might not be any strong reason to think that the building is going to collapse or that um, you have some reason to jump off. But our feelings make sense because falling off of a tall building is deadly. And when we have these thoughts and feelings, it's reminding us that, oh yeah, that's something that I hope never happens and it might be worth taking precautions to, to make sure it never happens. So feeling afraid of jumping off of a building or falling off of a building, that makes sense. 
and it might not be the case that in this situation it's likely to happen, but your feelings don't work that way, and we don't need to try to force them to work that way. All, all we know is that, yeah, falling off a building is bad, and this situation is reminding me that that would be bad. And everybody has those thoughts, by the way. Everybody has those thoughts. Uh, it's just the, the vicious cycle of the emotional problem that makes them really strong, and you know people can develop a phobia because they're not just um, feeling the fear of jumping off, but they're also afraid of uh, their own feelings about it. And what about feeling happy? It's like, uh, isn't that supposed to be the goal? Not necessarily. Feeling happy is not necessarily a meaningful goal in itself. And when we try to achieve uh, like a disembodied happiness that's not connected to anything meaningful, we don't wind up with um, long-term feelings of happiness, of, of self-efficacy uh, and purpose and peace of mind and connection. Uh, often what happens is, well, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true that you, you find these highs and then you chase the next high and you're always trying to find the next thrill. That's not what, uh, what peace of mind and serenity looks like. Um, really what peace of mind and serenity looks like is you make peace with whatever your feelings are. And uh, if it turns out that you're unhappy, you make sense of that. And you say, well, okay, what am I unhappy about? Here's some things that aren't working well. That makes sense why I'd be unhappy. And when you're not stuck in the vicious cycle of an emotional problem where you're going really hard on yourself for being unhappy, you find that you're not always unhappy. What better mental health looks like is sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're unhappy and you're able to make sense of that in the moment as those feelings are occurring. And it's possible for all of us to go through devastating tragedies and to feel grief. But if we allow the grief and we are able to make sense of it and uh, be at peace with it, then we find that, you know, over here for this chunk of time, we weren't really feeling aggrieved. We were feeling uh, whatever the situation over here called for. And maybe that was um, laughter. Maybe I was uh, temporarily not focused on what I'm grieving about because I was at a stand-up comedy show and I was having a good time. And, you know, it happens in a, in a normal life. You feel, you feel good and you feel bad and you feel both at the same time multiple times throughout the course of an ordinary human day. And I don't think this is often clear to people who are struggling with emotional problems because what we expect is the more the better, the more happiness the better. And we think that what's normal is to feel happy all the time. And that's not normal. When you really think about it, why would that be normal? Do you know anybody who feels happy all the time? I don't. I do know people 
who uh, lead lives that are filled with a lot of purpose. And uh, I know people who have gone from being mired in an emotional problem to now they're doing a lot better and they've recovered to a great extent from the troubles that they used to be in. Okay, so if diet, exercise, meditation, connection, positive thinking, rational thinking, feeling happy are not essential. And by the way, those are all good things, all of them, but they're not necessarily essential to recovering from emotional problems. What is essential? Well, that's a complex question. And if it were as easy as just giving you some sound bites uh, and then you apply them to your life and now you're better, well, you know, a third of the population wouldn't be tormented by these problems. But in a podcast episode, it is possible to talk about a few things that are helpful and uh, give us some important clues to follow to get on that path of better and better, of getting to a point where now I can say, hey, uh, I used to be quite troubled, and now I'm way less troubled. So here are, here are two things that are definitely zeroing in on what is essential to recovering from emotional problems. One would be to see the validity of both sides of your dilemmas. So anyone with an emotional problem is feeling stuck. But also people without emotional problems feel stuck. And so what happens is we often shame ourselves on two fronts. We say, um, what's wrong with me? I need to get over this depression. I need to stop feeling depressed or I'll never recover. And then on the same time, on, on the other hand, at the same time, we say, what's wrong with me? I need to just allow my feelings of depression because I know that I'll never recover if I can't allow them. Wow. So we're really being hard on ourselves on two fronts. Uh, we're saying I have to be depressed and I have to not be depressed. And there are... Um, situations in our lives that we have dilemmas about too so you know maybe you feel like you're not in the right job and so you're telling yourself i have to stay at my job because i don't have any other options and i'll i'll go broke if i quit and at the same time you're saying i have to leave my job because it is hurting my soul that's a hard situation and also most people find themselves in these kinds of hard situations and it's not your fault. It's not any of our faults that life involves these dilemmas. It's so common to be stuck in a situation in life where if I choose one way, there'll be consequences I don't like. And if I choose the other way, there'll be consequences I don't like. And if we can allow ourselves to suffer to experience the ordinary, unavoidable suffering of life, then we won't be in this torment where we're shaming ourselves on two fronts. So what I mean by seeing the validity of both sides of a dilemma is I allow myself to be bothered 
by the situation. I say, yeah, that makes sense. Man, if I do this, then this happens. And if I do that, then that happens. What can I do about that? I feel stuck at the moment. That's not an emotional problem. That is being a human being. And that's okay. It's okay to be human. There's no way to not be human. So that's the uh, one thing that I think is essential to recovery is validating yourself for, you know, if you go one way, it will hurt. And if you go another way, it will hurt. And that's life. The other thing is um, it pertains to your to-do list. And I've always been uh, somebody who kind of thrives on spontaneity and you could almost say chaos. And so as a, a teenager, when I was in middle school and high school, any time somebody talked about to-do lists or goals or anything like that, I would just tune out. And there's a good reason for that. I can uh, appreciate where I was coming from. But as I have recovered from my own emotional problems, it's so tempting to say that a to-do list is the key to recovery. It's tempting, but I'm not going to say that because any motivational speaker will tell you that. They'll say, you know, you got to make a list of your goals and achieve them, and then you'll feel better. That's true, but the tricky part is how do you get to that point where you make some progress without getting overwhelmed and doing the pendulum swing of saying, uh, it's all or nothing. You know, I couldn't get to everything on my to-do list, so why bother doing any of it? That's the dis disequilibrium that uh, most of us are mired in who have emotional problems. So I'm going to be more nuanced about it. Instead of saying a to-do list is the key to recovery, I'm going to say a to-do list that you, that you aren't overwhelmed by is essential because what happens with depression and anxiety is that in some ways we aren't putting enough effort into the things that we want to do that are meaningful to us and that's why it's tempting to say that the to-do list is the key to recovery because when I put some stuff on my to-do list and I start doing those things on the list, and I do them even when I don't feel like it, I do feel better. I, I have a feeling of self-efficacy, and my life is going better, and there's occasion for positive feelings. I feel in sync with my life, like things are going well. And so uh, I think that's what a human life entails, is looking at what we want to improve, what needs attention in our life, and making it better. But what happens when uh, we've got an anxiety problem? You know, you can see this happening with uh, the phenomenon of um, New Year's resolutions, where, like, you get all this initial burst of inspiration. You know, I'm going to do all this stuff, and then we all know that within a couple weeks we're not doing all that stuff. So uh, what we need is 
a list of things that are doable incremental steps that we actually have the energy for. So someone who is caught in the, the, the disequilibrium of all or nothing might make a to-do list that has uh, unattainable goals on it, that they're not specific enough, they're not incremental enough, it's just like, get the perfect job, find the perfect partner, whatever, whatever is needing attention in your life. But um, you get overwhelmed when you think about, well, how am I going to do that? So to have a list of small things that you actually have the energy for is actually a, a road to eventually getting those things done. If you can learn to not bite off more than you can chew, then, you know, even if you did one small thing on your list of things that are the things you want to work on in your life, if you did one small thing every day, after one year, you could say, I did 365 things that were little steps towards what I want to improve in my life. And that's the name of the game. I used to not practice really uh, my songs. I'm a songwriter. Um, because uh, I just had this all or nothing approach and it was like, well, why bother? You know, I'm a crazy, spontaneous guy. Uh, what really matters is the expression and uh, the believability of my performance and not the technical skill. And to some extent, that is how I operate. But uh, part of the reason why I had that attitude is because I would get, uh, you know, put the guitar in my hands and I would just start thinking about how far I was from being where I wanted to be as a guitarist. And then I would have an all or nothing, well, you know, why bother approach. But as I started to recover from my emotional problems in uh, general ways, I started to apply what I'd learned to practicing. And so I just thought, well, you know, a little bit is better than nothing. Why don't I just practice my songs a little bit and I, I don't need to really push myself hard. I'll just sit down, go through the songs a few times. And then I found that after like six months, I was playing the songs very well. And I hadn't put in a lot of exhausting effort into it. It was just like a little bit here and there. And I think that's a good pattern to follow for whatever it is that you want to work on. If you have a list of things to do that isn't exhausting, you'll eventually get there. That's how everybody gets to their goals. But uh, those of us with emotional problems, we want to do it right away and we want to do it perfectly. And that's, that's not real. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. But it does happen. It, you do get to your goal. And then there's one more thing about the, the to-do list. So your to-do list has uh, items on it that are possible. You don't get tired out. You're not overwhelmed when you look at the list. It's things that you can say, yeah, I'm depressed, but I could do that. You know, I do have the energy for that. These are things that I do have the energy for today. Maybe I don't do all of them, but uh, yeah, okay, I have the energy for the first thing on the list. I'll get that taken care of. And then go back to relaxing or whatever. The next thing is 
it's essential to be accepting of yourself when you realize, oh, okay, I don't actually have the energy for this thing on my list. That's okay. Having emotional problems is exhausting. It's draining. And there's no quick way out of that situation. But one of the surest ways to get past that kind of situation is to go easy on yourself. It doesn't mean to do nothing, but it means to say, okay, I'm going to try to do one of these things. And it'll either turn out that I did have the energy to do one of those things or not. And that's okay. I, I wasn't sure before I got in, into the process of doing it, but I did realize, okay, yeah, today I'm too overwhelmed and I'm not able to do this item, but um, maybe later on I will be able to do this item. Okay, so this podcast has already gone past a half an hour. Lots more to talk about here, but we'll do that in future episodes. Until I talk to you again, I wish only the best things for all of us. Mm -hmm.